a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm happy to welcome Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com back to the program. Eric, great to have you aboard. How are things? Yeah, well, Orange Man bad again. This is number four, right? <laughs> I, oh, man. I You know, another indictment. Now, I know there, it's probably just a coincidence, but it seems like every time something damning about the Biden family syndicate comes out, by gosh, mm-hmm. look, it's another Trump indictment. What's your take on, on this mm-hmm. latest thing? Fulton, uh, I guess in Fulton County, Georgia, Georgia uh, Trump yeah. and like 18 other individuals now are, are being indicted. Unindicted co-conspirators. Remember that? Oh, my yeah, goodness. It's, you know, it's a clown show, obviously. But then there's also the serious aspect of it, which to me is the, the fomented effort here to provoke something, I think. Uh, it's it's not a it's not an accidental thing that. As you say, uh, you know, at the, at, on the one hand, we're confronted with the serious serial grift and arguably treason of this creature that shambles around the White House, uh, and on the other, we, we're, we've got this 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 Beria-like, you know, the references to the Soviet prosecutor uh, uh, of of Trump over these trumped-up, ridiculous charges. Uh, as if they want somebody to do something so that they can say, look, look, extreme right, MAGA, threats to our democracy. It's just astounding. Yeah, I'm wondering this, but at the same time, I don't really want the answer. How far can this be taken? Well, it could be taken to the nth degree, and they just may uh, take it there, by which I mean they could do something like slap some kind of a gag order on Trump that would effectively end his presidential campaign as a legal matter, by by precluding him from speaking publicly about anything, and, you know, at that point, if he does, then they what do they do? They arrest him and put him in jail, uh, and and thereby Banana Republic style uh, just remove the primary contender against the uh, the the current El Jefe Presidente. How's that going to go over? Right. You know, it would be very clear that, that that the people in this country who are not uh, on the left and are not fans of Joe Biden have been formally disfranchised. You know, you have no right to disagree with these radical left people, period. And if you do, we're going to prosecute you and your leaders. We're going to put you in jail. And that's the end of it. Well, and it seems like we're making a shift, too. I mean, this is all in the name of saving democracy, but they're doing away with any democratic tradition. And this is basically turning our elections into some state selection committee sanctioned event that uh, you may or may not be able to put your stamp of OK on as a voter, but you're not going to change it. What is is yeah, what that's is. One of the, I think one of the most difficult things to grapple with, if you're you know, a normal person who isn't psychologically deranged in a kind of an Orwellian way, uh, is is to figure out how to deal with this strange juxtaposition of the left, whereby they'll say, for example, that they are for democracy except when it doesn't comport with what they want. Then it's a threat to democracy. You know, it's double think. It's what Orwell talked about. They'll say that they're all for free speech except when the free speech is something that they don't like and it contradicts their questions whatever it is the left thinks is sacrosanct. That's a hard thing to deal with. You know, normally, more normal people want to deal with, okay, you know, what's your point of view? Well, here's an objection to it, uh, and let's talk about it. You know, it's this, it's this kind of, like, medieval religious attitude that you must adhere to this dogma, period. 
And if you divert in any iota from the dogma, which, by the way, is endlessly shifting and changing, right. then you're some kind of a heretic and moral reprobate. So I know neither you nor I are, um, we're, we're not carrying water for Trump, okay? We're not, we're not fanboys. We're not out here campaigning for him. But I have to ask you, Eric, as these indictments keep piling up, as the establishment keeps pushing to, to make him ineligible to run, does that actually make him more electable? Does it actually solidify his support among, uh, among likely voters? Of course. I, I think that's self-evident. It, doesn't it make you sympathetic? Uh, it makes you think, you know, whatever his faults, and there are many, you know, you and I have talked publicly about that uh, uh, over the past couple of years. You just start to get angry about it, and you start to view Trump rightly as somebody who's persecuted, and it's not just him personally. You know, anybody with a grain of sense understands that this is much deeper and broader than Trump. Uh, you know, Trump is merely the, uh, you know, the figurative head of, uh, of something, and the target is us. You know, anybody who disagrees with these woke left people, that's essentially who's being indicted. Even if we haven't formally gotten the written notice of it yet, we're all part of this train wreck. And, you know, just out of an instinct of self-preservation and self-defense, you, you kind of want to join sides with the orange man and support the guy. Yeah. Well, I'll look, I'll admit it. I did not vote for him in 2016. Of course, I didn't vote for Hillary either. I wrote in, I think, Ron mm -hmm. Paul or something like that. Yeah. But in 2020, I did vote for Trump. And the reason I voted for him mm -hmm. is because the people and the, the, the causes that were lined up against him were just as they, they were odious enough that I was like, yeah, I'm going to put my support behind whatever it is that's scaring them to the yeah. point that they're acting out. I agree. Same. I had the exact same rationale. And that's how I'm feeling right now you know, a year and some months ahead of this next election, assuming that it is permitted to happen. The fact that so many of the right people hate this guy and you know, just seem to be determined to crucify him tells me it's perhaps worth voting for him. Well, as you said, it's another 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 week. More interesting developments, you know, have mm -hmm. to have to wonder what what goes next. Um Let's talk a little bit about, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the, the fires in Hawaii, some interesting conspiracies mm -hmm. floating around out there. I'm not so concerned about that as I am with, I'm hearing, I'm hearing talk that insurance companies, as in the homeowners and property owners insurance, mm -hmm. uh, is telling people, uh, you had a zoning violation, so we won't be able to pay your claim. Well, that's not unusual. You know, these, the insurance mafia, I always call them that because that's what they are. You know, they extort money using government. And uh, they'll do anything they can to get out of paying even completely legitimate claims. This is, they're, they're notorious for doing that. And there's no doubt in my mind that these, these disasters, um, including things like the cargo ships that have burned up full of EVs, uh, are, the cost of that is going to be transferred generally onto people who were forced to pay insurance. You know, I've had a number of people tell me privately and through email and so on that they got their renewal for their home insurance policy. And it had gone up for no particular reason. They'd never filed a claim. Uh, nothing had happened, but you know the insurance mafia is doing it because they're they're paying out. So the object is to make us pay out because the insurance mafia is not in the business of losing money. Now, with regard to this Hawaii thing, the thought occurred to me, and I have absolutely no proof of this, and I don't know whether there's anything to this, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that the whole thing was started by an EV fire. Wow. Yeah, I I know there's talk of their space weapons, and you know they did this and that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, it was it, it's tragic, whatever. But what's what's even more tragic is it appears there are people taking advantage of it, and uh, you know people swooping in, wanting to buy up you know these properties that have been burned clean, and 
And mm-hmm. I don't know, it just, it, there's something fishy about it. Maybe, maybe it's just the times that we live in. Well, and there's something predatory about it too. And that there have always been such things. Natural disasters happen, forest fires happen. Um, but now, you know, it becomes the pretext for a crisis. You know, it's not just, ugh, there was a fire, it's been a hot, dry summer, something caught fire, really sucks. A lot of people's houses got burned down. That's a sad thing. Now it's, oh, the climate is changing, and look, look, we've got to do something about it. You know, that sort of thing. Every single time there's some perfectly normal occurrence that just is par for the course of human events. These things happen. Uh, it becomes another pretext for uh, creating a crisis and imposing all of these measures on us. So I, I want to shift gears here and talk about um, a guy who apparently hails from, from your great commonwealth, uh, that Oliver Anthony, the, the bearded redheaded mm-hmm. fellow, uh, you know, sprung onto the scene last week and now people know about him. What's your take? Yep. Legit talent? Is, well, this, is this a man of the people or is this, is this a psyop as well? I don't know whether it's a psyop, but the, the, you know, the general broad brush strokes of it are apt. You know, I can speak to this because I do live here and I have lived in Northern Virginia and the contrast between, you know, the Northern part of the state and specifically that, that small cancerous region, region that, that is uh, around the beltway. And then another little metatastic area that's around Richmond dominates politically the entire state. You know, and if you were to look at a, a map of it and look at the voting patterns, uh, you know, something like, I don't know, 85 to 90 percent of the state uh, is uh, is red. And there are these tiny little areas of blue up in the northern part and around Richmond, and they control the state. You know, it, it's very frustrating to have, as the, I think the song is, what is it, uh, Rich, rich Men Up North, something like that? Yeah, the Rich, uh, rich Men North it, of Richmond. That's it, exactly. They're the ones who have effectively become the dictators over the entire population. You know, and this is the same thing, you know, California is not full of leftists. Leftists are all in, in L.A. and San Francisco. And if you go out to other parts of the state, there are a lot of normal people out there, but they are uh, enthralled to these these urban hive people, uh, the woke people that live in the big cities. And that's becoming a problem across the entire country. Here, here. All right, we've got to take a very quick break again. Uh, Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. And uh, Eric, in, in the 30 seconds we've got here, uh, where can people, where can they find your website? Oh, easy enough. Just epautos.com. And if they're interested in getting a Keeve shirt or a safety shirt or anything fun like that, they can visit the EP Auto store, too. I forgot you do. You have some great swag. Mm-hmm. And, and it shares a message that's, that's worth sharing. Okay, hang on. We're going to be back in just a moment. Eric Peters is my guest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, cars are not getting cheaper. I mean, I was having this conversation with one of my kids yesterday about, uh, you know, well, you know, when you get through with school and you're, you know, working a job and, you know, if you save some money, you can probably afford a car. And, and then I thought, you know, I wonder how that is. Because take, for instance, trucks. A new truck today costs almost three times what my wife and I paid for our first home. Mm-hmm. And and, and yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, you know, you, your kid can't afford to buy a truck. Heck, we can't afford to buy a truck. Very true. 
And and you just you recently wrote about the seventy thousand dollar Jeep. I had to do a double yeah. take because I was like, really? <laughs> I I remember like fifteen years ago seeing a, a specific model of Jeep that had been put out, um, but I mean it was like souped up, five hundred horsepower or something. I mean they yeah. made you pay an extra gas waster tax on it and everything. Yep. But we're, yep. we're not talking about some supercar version of Jeep, are we? No, you're talking about the uh, the version that had the supercharged Hellcat engine that you know made, was made famous in the Charger and the Challenger. So a very specialty vehicle. What we're talking about in this case is the very last of the diesel-powered uh, Gladiators that you'll be able to buy. And the Gladiator is basically a Wrangler with a short bed in the back of it. You used to be able to get a diesel in the Wrangler, too. Uh, and you're not going to be able to get them anymore because they're being outlawed. So, you know, the handful of models that Jeep is going to build for 2024, the last year of availability, uh, they'll be like $71,000 and change. So, you know, effectively, once again, just like the V8 engine, it's going to be something only the rich people can afford. And the rest of us will just have to suck it up. And it's just un- unreal in the affrontery of it and the obnoxiousness of it on so many levels. Diesels are efficient. You know, you can go even in this gigantic, it's big, you know, it's a big, heavy SUV. It weighs close to 5,000 pounds. And this, this thing can still go more than 500 miles on a, a full tank of fuel. Wow. And, you know, people are being denied that for the sake of some cheesy plastic little crappy EV that maybe goes 200 and something miles, maybe, and then makes you wait for hours, if not overnight. Uh, to instill some charge back into it to get back out on the road. It's just it's just astounding to me that people are not up in arms about what I consider to be their ensurfment via these EVs. Man, I am. <laughs> I, it's so frustrating because if if the market were allowed to do what the market does, um, I don't think we would all be driving you know rolling coal you know everywhere we went. Yeah. But uh, people people who want efficiency would be able to get efficiency. But it just seems like I, you've, you've pointed this out many times. We are being shepherded into a place where, where our ability to move about freely to roam more than 15 minutes from home is mm-hmm. going to be taken away. Mm-hmm. And this efficiency thing, it, it's a fatuity. And I can prove that very easily by pointing out that uh, right now, uh, anybody who wants to could go out and buy a brand new Prius hybrid, the new one. Uh, for about $26,000, and this one goes 700 miles, and it averages nearly 60 miles per gallon. Averages, city and highway, 60 miles per gallon, very close to it, 58 miles per gallon or 57 miles per gallon. So it's roughly half the price of the lower-end uh, lower EVs that are available right now that cost close to $50,000, and it goes literally three times as far, and it emits essentially nothing in terms of any meaningful pollution, but yet Solutions like that are not being promoted, and that's a very curious thing. Instead, what's being pushed really hard are these $50,000 and up, uh, short, short-range, short tethered-to-accord EVs that mostly only affluent people can afford and that are going to greatly diminish the ability of average people to get around. So let me ask you this. How serious do you think the threat of the 15-minute city is here in America? I mean, we're fairly independent, but... Is, is, it, is it an idea that's, that's likely to be forced upon us here? Oh, they're going to try. I mean, they're already doing it effectively. You know, if this EV thing succeeds, uh, you know, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for people to not live in a city at any rate or at least close to one, uh, you know, because how are you going to be able to do that? How are you going to be able to, if you have to drive a significant distance every day, particularly in the winter, you know, there are areas of the country where four or five months out of the year it's very cold and an EV is simply not going to cut the mustard for you. You know, if you, have a, if you have a business, you need a truck that can go hundreds of miles every day 
and do real work. You know, the EV is going to end that. And so what are people going to do? They're not going to be able to live out in the rural areas anymore. They're going to be forced economically. It won't take a law. It won't take politics. It's economics that will force them out of their single-family homes, their farms, and so on, uh, into some urban hive. That's how they're going to do the 15-minute city thing. Wow. I'm, uh, you know, I'm already thinking, okay, horses, motorcycles, what's it going to be? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not going to be corralled no matter what. Nor I. And the time to push back is now. If we learned anything from the three years of the Airfingers quote pandemic, it is to stop it before it begins. Uh, you know, it, I've been just ranting about this forever. If people had just stopped putting on that stupid mask, uh, a couple of months into the pandemic, the pandemic would have been over. It would have been it. It wouldn't have lasted longer than six months. And we would ne- never gotten to the point where we, we were being threatened with vaccine passports and loss of jobs and all the rest of it. So get that and understand that. And now is the time to push back against this EV thing and just not accept it. Well, I agree with you. You know, the if, if we wait until it's obvious and everybody's like, hey, you're right. We are in chance. Yeah. Guess what? It's it's yeah. a little bit late at that point. Correct. Exactly. The time to realize it is not when you're sitting in a jail cell somewhere and or in your 15-minute <laughs> freedom apartment or whatever they're going to call it. And sadly, you know, getting people to see this. Um, I'll give you an example of this real quick. Um, Ammon Bundy was finally arrested over the weekend. Mm-hmm. But the way the police did it. They waited until he was at his son's football fundraiser. So there's about 200 people, pillars of the community, mm-hmm. the mayor, the principal of the school. You know, there, there are a number of dignitaries there, and they're enjoying a nice banquet. They're about to start up the auction to do the fundraiser. And suddenly you've got almost a dozen deputies that walk into the room and just kind of fan out, spreading among their Every conversation stopped. Just It was, it was just intimidation. Yep. And then they finally yeah, they made their... sending a message. And, and they went over to where, to where Ammon was and uh, surrounded him, demanded he stand up and, and put him in handcuffs. And people started to protest. I think the principal of the school stood up and an officer screamed at him, sit down, you know, and the principal's like, yeah. I'm, the, I'm the principal of this school. Why are you doing this now? But it's it's just reminiscent of, I, I think that uh, when, when the SS was out on business and on the town, yeah. would, would they not walk into a place and do that very same thing, demonstrating who, who is in authority? They would. And, you know, Zolchnitsyn had something to say about that, too, about how uh, later they burned in the camps when they when they remembered how they cringed and sat and did nothing when the NKVD, which was the Soviet uh, version of the SS, uh, would rush into their building and kick open the door of some innocent neighbor of theirs and drag him away. And they didn't do anything. You know, the time has come to do something. That's the bottom line. Uh, and, and, you know, if enough people had stood up in that situation and, and, and stood by Ammon, those cops would have left. And that's, I think, we're at the point, you know, I'm not, I'm not anti-police, but I am anti-thuggery. And yeah. I think we're at the point where we have to confront thuggery. Well, and, and it needs to be mentioned, the reason he was arrested was because of a uh, contempt warrant that was issued by a judge mm-hmm. in a civil case. And uh, th- he, was, he was bonded out within about 36 hours. So, you know, he's home now, but you have to ask. Why. It's not criminal. That's an interesting point. Because yeah. we're not talking about somebody who committed some kind of a, a crime that involved a threat to the public. This is essentially a civil matter. It's about whether he complied with some bureaucratic edict of the court. And they made a big show, you know, just like they did with, uh, what's his name, uh, Oliver Stone. And I don't really like that guy. The, the, the Trump guy, 
you know, they sent the they sent the hut 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 body armored M sixteen toting crew oh, to yeah. drag him out of his house in front of the CNN cameras. It's 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 Soviet. No, it's uh, it was uh, Roger. I can't remember his last name now. Roger Stone. That's Roger it. Stone. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it's and I agree. It's this is performative. It's it's there to send a message, and uh, frankly, I don't like the message that I'm getting. <laughs> it's it's making me very nervous. No, I don't like it either. And I I hope and pray that there are enough good people left in the ranks of the police who will stand up and say, "I'm not participating in this," and if that means I have to. Uh, with this job, so be it. You know, I understand that people have to feed their families and make a living, and I understand it's a tremendous sacrifice. But sometimes you have to make that sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a quick thank you to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, and ClimbingUpward.com. All right, we talked a little bit about uh, this, this sensation. Oliver Anthony, the singer who recently discovered... By the way, I've seen some interesting takes on this, that, well, it's a big psyop. And... You know, it's crazy, but we live in a time where you really have to be willing to question the veracity of everything that comes along because there are folks out there who are very, very good at manipulating public opinion. Now, personally, I think that uh, Oliver Anthony's insane popularity is probably in proportion to how deeply his message resonates with the forgotten citizens of this nation. When he sings, Rich Men, North of Richmond, I think there are a pretty fair number of people who are like, he's right. They're more concerned about what's happening on, uh, you know, about getting their flight booked to Epstein Island than they are about, you know, taking care of the the people who are actually the, the backbone of the American economy. In other words, staying out of their way, not regulating them out of existence and not taxing them into oblivion. I got a great article here from J.B. Shirk. This is from uh, AmericanThinker.com. The elite seem to think they've got things sewed up pretty good, so much so that they're doing a lot of stuff right out in the open. I think the indictments of Trump are just, you know, another example of, well, you can't touch us. And look, we're going to show you even more. This is this is how we will demonstrate how untouchable we are. But economically, they're not as impervious as they believe they are. They're not as as bulletproof as they think they are. J.B. Shirk says the economy's red death will come for D.C. too. Now, he references the Edgar Allan Poe short story, The Mask of the Red Death, in which a group of nobles wall themselves off from the surrounding country to avoid a devastating plague. Seemingly secure inside their fortified castle, the elites live in a state of luxurious indulgence indifferent to the people suffering beyond their gates. While they throw lavish parties, the rest of their countrymen die miserable deaths. Eventually, however, the Red Death finds its way into their safe space and eviscerates their fantasy. And because the aloof aristocrats are trapped inside a fortress of their own making, they soon perish. Now he says that's a story that every DC power player should read. The rift between the beltway conventional wisdom and the day-to-day reality of ordinary Americans is growing into an unbridgeable crevasse. 
So while families struggle to afford food, fuel, and essentials for young children, the White House continues to assure Americans that the economy has never been better. And while the Department of Homeland Security insists that America's borders are secure and that illegal immigration is under control, small towns across the country struggle to deal with spiking fentanyl deaths, transnational crime networks, and forced multiculturalism that often drives a wedge within communities. International trade deals that were negotiated and signed by residents of D.C. have hollowed out once thriving industrial towns and left multiple generations of blue-collar workers poor and adrift. The Rust Belt has never been more corroded, says J.B. Shirk, yet Wall Street and Washington seem to be doing better than ever. It's as if the wealthiest and most influential Americans have holed themselves up inside a luxurious castle so that they may ignore the devastation afflicting the rest of the country. Now, here comes the painful part. Three decades ago, Americans built things. Little towns watched most of their working-age men head off to local manufacturing plants early in the morning and come back home covered in dirt and sweat. American industry was not just a paycheck, but also a way of life that left communities with a sense of camaraderie and pride. American muscle meant something to the families who survived from the efforts of hard work. For many towns, local manufacturing and industry created a shared identity. When there were workplace accidents, bad news spread to every downtown diner and high school student immediately. When seasonal festivals and parades came, the town's blue-collar workforce was always celebrated. But for some reason, becoming old enough to join the town's work crews was a rite of passage connecting one generation to the next. Grandfathers, fathers, and sons remained bonded by a common adversity and success. For other families, blue-collar jobs provided a steady enough salary to save for the opportunity to send a child to college and toward the promises of a different life. Intergenerational social mobility from lower economic classes to higher ones was achievable because blue-collar jobs were dependable. Oh man, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling nostalgic just reading this. Then came the international free trade deals like NAFTA in the 90s and granting to China permanent normal trade relations status in 2000. And the relative prosperity and security found within America's blue-collar towns disappeared overnight. Jobs went straight to Mexico and China, manufacturing plants that had provided the financial backbone for generations of families closed down and boarded up. Men stopped going to work in the morning, Families disintegrated under hardship and once unthinkable divorce. The potential for social mobility vanished because despair replaced hope. Now, if you drive across America today, you will pass one graveyard after another filled with abandoned factories, decaying homes, and town squares devoid of life. J.B. Shirk says D.C.'s political class does not want to acknowledge this awful truth. For three decades, Republicans and Democrats have promised that all the lost jobs going to Asia, Mexico, and South America would be miraculously replaced with lucrative service industry jobs, capable of satisfying American families better. Somehow, the men with dirt under their fingernails and sunburns on their necks were expected to become customer service representatives or computer programmers. Nobody asked America's labor force whether they would prefer a future wearing khakis and dress shoes to a life in traditional work overalls and boots. The Potomac nobles just pretended to know what was best. With the offshoring of well-paying blue-collar jobs to oversee markets using slave-like labor, 
Shirk says America's most profitable companies have become even more profitable multinational behemoths. Stock market valuations have continued to rise. Powerful lobbying groups in D.C. have made a fortune brokering new deals between Congress and foreign interests. Meanwhile, America's forgotten workforce has seen both its savings and opportunities dry up. He says if America builds little today and survives mainly from the profits of an investment banking sector centered in Manhattan, then how will it support itself should that sector one day soon go belly up? Endless congressional spending and unsustainable national debt do not provide the financial conditions for long-term stability and wealth. His point being that inevitably the red death of economic desolation will reach inside D.C.'s sanctuary too. And he says when that day comes and the American economy crumbles, who will be around with the blue-collar grit and know-how to build this nation back up? Okay, I admit it. That's, there's some stark reality that, that has to be confronted there. And sadly, it looks like, you know, we're, we're going to see tough times. I'm talking economically, financially. I think a lot of people are feeling this right now. But I also think we're really good at pretending, no, 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 everything's good. You know, it's the, the, the free fall that we're in right now is either slow enough or we're used to it enough that it doesn't really have that sensation of we're in an elevator that is, you know, without any speed break at all and just falling, you know, with this constant pull of gravity. But I see people's standard of living declining. And I, I don't I don't mean to... I don't mean to dwell on, you know, the negative here and, oh, let's wallow in it. But I think what this speaks to is we have got to be capable of building whatever comes next. We've got to be working on it right now. We can't wait. Okay, well, now it's all collapsed. What do we do? We've got to, we've got to be doing what we can to be as self-sufficient as we can, to build community as best we can. And it's going to be a cooperative effort. But here's the difference. The kind of cooperation I'm talking about doesn't mean top-down micromanagement like we've grown used to under the regulatory and deep state that emanates from Washington, D.C., where everything, no aspect of your life, is considered really your own. It's going to be people coming together voluntarily and working together to help meet and address one another's needs. But I'm not going to pretend like, and it's just going to be, you know, just this smooth transition and nobody's going to really feel any pain or anything. I mean, I'm, I'm so sorry to say this because I know it's just, it's going to overwhelm some people. But I think we're all going to feel the pain of whatever is coming economically. I think a lot of people are feeling it right now. But it's like a, like a toothache. It's just starting with this dull ache and it's like, yeah, it's, it's getting worse, but it's still bearable. Or at least it's, you know, it's not, you know, agonizing. Look, I don't want it to I don't want it to go down this way, but I just I don't see how the situation that we're in right now, particularly with out of control government spending and the creation and injection of trillions of dollars into the economy, I don't think it's sustainable. I'm not an economist, okay? I'm not a not a monetary expert by any means. I'm just a simple average guy. But if I can see it, I'm thinking then we've got some real problems. So, Let's look at solutions, okay? Let's let's not get caught up in okay. That's oh, it looks it looks pretty scary. Yeah, it does. But there are steps you and I can and should be taking right now, getting skills, tools, commodities 
to get us through the tough times and build those relationships with the people around you. You're not going to lone wolf your McQuaid through this one. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Two quick articles I want to touch on. One is the article of the day, which I'll get to here in a few moments. In the meantime, I wanted to just touch on this one from DiscourseMagazine.com. It's called Elites Need a Lesson in Humility. Subtitle, members of the educated class are beginning to realize what the rest of us have known for some time, and that is Americans have good reasons not to trust them. This is written by John Gabriel. And he references a clip that I'm, I'm sure many of you have seen. If you haven't, it's pretty easy to find. The British comedy show that Mitchell and Webb look has a viral sketch showing two Nazi soldiers worried that they might be on the wrong side of the war. Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them, one asks? Are we the baddies? Well, in a column for the New York Times last week, David Brooks posed a similar question as he agonized over Donald Trump's current domination of the GOP primary. Brooks says the educated class lives in a world up here and everyone else is forced into a world down there. Members of our class are always publicly speaking out for the marginalized, but somehow we always end up building systems that serve ourselves. Now to this, John Gabriel says, yes, I think people have noticed. The op-ed was grudgingly praised by some conservatives and assailed by the left and other anti-Trump voters. Some on the populist right offered up a little mockery. Saurabh Sharma, president of the national conservative group American Moment, wrote of the op-ed, It is pretty funny that the ostensibly conservative commentators at the Times have to engage in protracted, protracted thought experiments to imagine how actual conservative voters may see the world. That's a good point. And it's not just conservatives. As can be seen in Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s renegade campaign, a growing number of Americans have grown jaded over the past two decades, and with good reason. Brooks himself often boasts about his self-appointed role as a thought leader for the educated class while fretting about his social inferiors. Rather, One of his more famous moments recounted an awkward lunch in Manhattan. Recently, I took a friend with only a high school degree to lunch. He recalled in an earlier column, Brooks said, Insensitively, I led her into a gourmet sandwich shop. The rarefied air of a sandwich shop proved too much for his companion. I saw her face freeze up when she was confronted with sandwiches named Padrino and Pomodoro and ingredients like Soprasetta, Capicola, and Striata Baguette. <laughs> he says, I quickly asked her if she wanted to go somewhere else, and she anxiously nodded yes, and we ate Mexican. So apparently those with a mere high school diploma are incapable of enjoying sophisticated boulangeries such as Jimmy John's or Jersey Mike's. Thank heavens a Chipotle was nearby. Well, despite his condescension, Brooks correctly points out the self-dealing nature of American meritocracy, which, by the way, that's a topic rarely broached in the New York Times opinion section. As it slowly replaced the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant aristocracy, meritocracy promised to reward ability over pedigree. In many cases, this goal was realized, but the system has devolved into a new caste system, stressing academic accreditation and boutique beliefs over simple merit and hard work. An Ivy League student garners degrees, builds a social network, and marries a similarly educated spouse. Through their high-salary professions, these members of the meritocracy lavish advantages on their offspring who matriculate to the same elite schools. 
Once the cycle repeats for a generation of two, or a generation or two, you start referring to common cold cuts as charcuterie. Now, Brooks treats this all as new information, but it's long been evident to most Americans. And that includes those like Brooks who only have a bachelor's degree, but we would be embarrassed to identify or self-identify with the uh, educated class. Now, the article goes on to talk about how the elites aren't who they used to be. Talks about how you shouldn't hate your voters. And by the way, there's a lot of hatred being you know, directed at Trump voters right now. Look at the recent indictment in Georgia. This is, this is not about justice. This is now about humiliation and domination and, hey, we're going to uh, prevent you from, you know, running. And, and I'm not a Trump fanboy. I, you know, I'm not trying to tear him down, but I'm just telling you, I don't have a dog in that fight. But it's very clear that uh, to protect democracy, the people who are going after Trump are going to destroy it so that we have state selection committees that put uh, the people in office who can be trusted to do the right thing and, and not uh, cater to us uh, rubes out there in flyover country. Sorry if that sounds a little bit uh, jaded, but I think that's, that's not an inaccurate uh, description of what's going on. Anyway, the article here concludes, perhaps if all our politicians loved their voters, educated and uneducated alike, uneducated alike, rather, we could break down this meritocratic caste system dividing Americans from each other. Just wait until the elite needs something fixed. I mean, did we not see this kind of uh, mindset at work during lockdowns? The essential versus the non-essential? Well, the uh, elite stayed home working from their laptops. Yeah, the uh, the blue-collar folks, the folks who actually turn the wrenches and keep the electricity going and the water flowing and so forth, they were out there at risk. Now, it turns out, not at terrible risk, but still, the, the difference was pretty striking. And I still think of all those different uh, videos that have surfaced of, you know, various g- events where, you know, the elite would get together, whether it be Hollywood or whether it be the political class. Did you notice Only the servants were the ones required to be masked at all times. Once you attained a certain status, well, you didn't really need that mask after all, which just kind of proves the point. The masks really weren't doing anything other than signifying one submission to the state. Which is why I absolutely refused and continue to refuse to put it on. All right, last article. This is the article of the day, and it's it's a fairly lengthy read, but if you're not familiar with the psychologist Stanley Milgram's experiments, it would be worth your time to, to gain some familiarity with this. This is a piece from the Brownstone Institute. Armando Simon wrote it, and it's, it's touching on psychology, but he says, look, in today's toxic, today's toxic state in society is a cornucopia for psychologists. For example, victimhood has become a status symbol in society to the point that non-minorities claim to be minorities in order to reap the sympathy and benefits of this status. Studies have shown professional victims tend to have negative personality characteristics, most notably the dark triad. I know I had to look that one up. Then there's the matter of projection, the psychological mechanism wherein a person projects his or her own negative characteristics onto others. 
Thus, we see individuals call their opponents fascists while advocating and imposing censorship, calling for concentration camps for political opponents, engaging the politicization of science and art, falsifying history, peddling propaganda, physically assaulting people having different viewpoints, and engaging in the indoctrination of children. You know, to fight fascism. Now, he says it's possible you may not have heard of psychologist Stanley Milgram's famous experiment. Milgram's experiments on obedience to authority always had a political undertone, which he himself stated. He proved that a large majority of people would continue to engage in an immoral act when ordered by a person in authority, specifically administering increasingly painful electrical shocks to another person. Even when the persons administering the shock became stressed and voiced inappropriateness of the situation, they continued to do so when asked to continue, although a few, including some women, enjoyed their participation. The subjects were not threatened into doing so, they were simply ordered. However, a small percentage of persons stopped participating and refused to follow orders. Now, the point here is that the results of Milgram's experiment are not confined to the laboratory. We see it taking place today in real time throughout different sections of society. And from here, he gives several different instances, including transgenders in competitions, indoctrination in schools, and Congress, the FBI, the COVID fiasco. Fascinating stuff. And, and, and in every case where people were doing bad things to other people, arresting churchgoers, you know, doing mask enforcement, forcing people to take a jab they didn't want, etc. We're just following orders. We're just doing our job. By the way, the media was uh, was more conforming and more obedient than ever. Whether it's television or print media, it's uh, it's essentially the media hive mind. Obedience to authority is mandatory and you still see it today. So, he says, as a psychologist, I'm surprised sometimes that the findings within my field, like Milgram's experiment, aren't being utilized to make sense of today's world. And as you can see from the examples he gives, there's a basic principle running throughout each of the specific occurrences of either courage or cowardice. And I share that with you, and I hope you'll go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com to read this complete article by Armando Simon. Because I really believe you're one of the courageous people who would be willing to stop. Even if someone in authority is telling you the experiment must continue, or, or whatever the equivalent of that is. I don't think it's ever been more important to be right with God, to have a well-calibrated moral compass, and to know when to draw that line and say, I have to step away. I cannot participate in this. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.